Well, welcome. Glad that you could come this morning. Uh, just want to remind you tonight, we have the opportunity to gather together a family fellowship service, and that's at 6 o'clock, and again, that's an opportunity for us to gather as a family. That's the intent. Uh, we will have some time singing together, and I think Brock will be bringing the word to us, some new members, and, and just some hangout time as well. And, and I don't know if there'll be snacks or not, but um, you know what? Raid your fridge. Just bring it. Someone will eat it. If you're trying to get rid of stuff that your family's not going to deal with, bring the leftovers. To the rest of us, they aren't leftovers. We haven't had them this week. So uh, if you want to do that, we'd love to encourage you to do that. But again, just, just come. Um, be a part of that. Men next Saturday is our men's breakfast. Show up here at 730. Uh, some yehu with the same name that I've got is going to be teaching, but I'm told he's okay. Uh, and also as well, another opportunity for men to fellowship together. We'll be having our world-famous breakfast burritos, of course. Some time of singing together and, and being with one another. Guys, if you haven't gone to one of those or you've come sporadically, please make some time next Saturday morning to do that. You, you will be blessed by doing so. And ladies, I don't want to forget you. There's an opportunity, uh, some uh, women's conference coming up. Anyone know the date? April 20th. Very good. And 21st. It's a two-part deal. So make sure to come to that. And I'm encouraging you to do that today because today is the last day to sign up for that at the current price of, I think, $35. I think next week it goes up to a billion dollars or something like that. So do it now before it goes up. And if that's an issue for, for you in terms of the finances, we don't want that to be a barrier or hindrance for you to come. So uh, just make that known. Um, one of the elders or somebody that, that can help you with that or just call into the office. We want to make sure that you're there. Um, just the, so many opportunities here at Calvary to get together, and I just want to make sure that you take advantage of those that you can. We are family, and we want to uh, get to know one another better, and those are the great opportunities to do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless His Word. Father, thank You so much for You, for welcoming us into fellowship with You through the blood of Jesus, and thank You that we can stand before you because of him and that you have forgiven us. We thank you, Lord, for your word, the truth with it, with it, which it reveals to us. And Lord, there are just so many needs that we have as a body. Lord, we are weak and frail creatures. Our, our bodies are failing. Lord, we suffer trial and tribulation, struggle with sin. And, and Lord, I just pray for us, God, that you would strengthen and encourage us, help us to look to you. I pray now, Lord, as we look to your word, that, God, you might uh, use it, Lord, in our lives by your Spirit to help us understand it, to apply it, to desire to please you through it. And I pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hebrews 12, 2 <clears throat> gives us that famous phrase that, to run the race, the Christian life, with endurance. And it says how in the very next verse, by fixing our eyes, fixing our gaze upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. But if you were to survey... What we see today in Christian bookstores or what's portrayed on Christian TV or uh, on the Internet or uh, sermons and some sermons in various churches which call themselves Christian churches, I, I'm left to wonder if Jesus is really the focus at all anymore here in America in our Christian culture. I mean, just take a look at the top 100 uh, Christian books that are sold in the last couple of years. And as you look through the list, you will find many books on marriage and, and parenting, dealing with trials, biographies, many fictional books, how-to books, but very few, if any, that are focused on Jesus. Yeah, I know he's mentioned in many of those books, and, and there, some of them are very helpful, and those are important issues, many of the things that are there. But, but you know, as you look through them, very many of them are devoid of helping us to encourage to fix our gaze on Christ or helping us to know how fixing our gaze on Christ would help us deal with those various issues in life. But at least in looking through that list, uh, as I was doing that this week, I found that the number one seller was a, a book called Jesus Calling. So I, I had some hope and encouragement in that. So at least his name's in the title. So I read the book. was very disappointed. You see, the book is structured as a, a daily devotional containing uplifting words from Christ. But the problem is the author claims that those words are literally words from Christ directly given to her. She says in her introduction that she affirms the importance and necessity of the Bible, but she confessed that the Bible was just not fulfilling enough. She needed more. 
So she essentially turned to mysticism and would spend times in Jesus' presence and receive direct revelation from her. And, and she was quick to point out that, you know, though the Bible is inspired, and it's the only book that's inspired, but she forgets the definition of inspiration because inspiration is simply God breathing out, right? Whenever He speaks, that's inspiration. And she claimed that Jesus was speaking through her. But Jesus has already spoken all we need to hear, has He not? He's already said all that we need in His all-sufficient Word. I think the author of Jesus Calling has, has done what many in our Christian culture today are doing, and that's using Jesus to meet felt needs to, to the point of putting words in His own mouth in order to feel better. After reading that book and so many others, I have to ask, where is the Jesus of Scripture? Where is the majesty and glory of Christ? Where is the Son of God? Where is the worship of Christ, the worship that that believers will experience and participate in all through eternity? But indeed, the sad fact is that the American Jesus who is spoken of and spoken for is not often the one that we see in the Bible. Last week, I talked about God the Father as being uh, forgotten by many, disregarded. If the Father has been disregarded, the Son has been domesticated. We've reduced Jesus to cute Bible stories, to a pitiful victim who needed to die so we could go to heaven, a a miracle worker, a good teacher, a good man, or a mystical presence that makes us feel good. And I think our culture has been guilty often of using Jesus like a drug rather than as our Lord. And this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to write this ship for us. Through Ephesians 1, particularly verses 7 through 12, in this great eulogy, we're going to see Jesus for who he really is. He's not the one being sold, bought and sold in the marketplace today. No, the one we will find here about Jesus in these verses uh, will tell us four descriptions of Jesus Christ that we need to remind ourselves of daily so that we might praise the Son of God rightly as is due him. So look along with me as I read Ephesians 1, and we'll read the whole paragraph again, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will." to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Amen. Here in verses 7 to 12 in particular, we see four descriptions of Jesus. Jesus as the Son, as the Redeemer, as the conqueror and the benefactor. And we'll look at each of those together as we go through this passage. But this great doxology is a doxology, a eulogy given to express the role of each member of the Trinity in our salvation. And last week we looked at the Father, God the Father, and, and His role in planning and in choosing our salvation. And next Paul turns in verses 7 through 12 toward God the Son. And you notice in those verses how many different names that that he gave Jesus there. He calls him uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and and Christ and Jesus Christ. You know, we see Jesus' name all through the New Testament, don't we? And sometimes I think we simply rush through it out of habit. but, But Paul never tired of speaking it. He never tired of proclaiming it. If you look in his epistles and his testimony, you see Jesus all over the place. And though it's systematically being eliminated from our culture, right? Happy holidays. 
Let us not follow suit with that. May we never be silent. May we be as Paul and have the sweet name of Jesus on our lips all the time. There are many descriptions and titles and names given to Jesus throughout Scripture. And I, I struggle with this a little bit this week. And it's like, what to focus on? There's, there's so much, so many places we could go in looking at Jesus Christ. Right? He is the eternal, infinite God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? He is the one and only Son that John 3.16 tells us about. He's fully man. As we learn in John 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. There's a fascinating look at the angel of the Lord. Jesus is the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the coming King of Isaiah. He's the one that Thomas worshipped. He's our Lord, our Master, our Teacher, Yahweh, King, Healer. And among the many names and the many titles of our Lord, Paul gives one in particular here in verses, uh, these verses that we read this morning that, that struck me. It's one that shines out like a beacon. It's not a, a name or a title, but it's a description. It's a description of the relationship, the close relationship that exists between Father and Son. And did you see it there in verse 6 as we read through it? What's Jesus referred to there as? The Beloved. The beloved. Paul only uses it one time, but it expresses that relationship between Father and Son. Last week we talked about God the Father is the supreme authority in the Trinity and how the Son was submissive to Him while on this earth and is in eternal subjection to the Father, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. But here we see that there's also a great affection between the Father and the Son. And it wasn't Paul who came up with this term. Actually, it was the Father Himself. If you remember, while Jesus was on earth, there were three different times in the New Testament and the Gospels where the Father spoke audibly. The first time was near the beginning of His ministry, at His baptism. The second time was about the middle of His ministry, the transfiguration. And the third time was near the end of Jesus' ministry as He was praying to the Father in John 12. But if you remember at His baptism and at the transfiguration, what did the Father say to the Son? So that the rest could hear. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father refers to Jesus as his beloved son. The one in whom he takes delight in. The one who gives him pleasure. The one who makes him glad. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew 12 verse 18. He quoted Isaiah 42 1 where God is speaking of his servant, the Messiah, who we know to be the Lord Jesus. And this is what it says. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. And then in John 1.18, we read this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That word begotten there isn't a, isn't a word meaning creation. It isn't saying Jesus was created by the Father, but it expresses a, that unique relationship that he has. It's the one and only or refers to a, a unique person within a special relationship. My, my loved one, my most loved one. It's a term of endearment, really. And notice in that verse in John 1.18, it gives us a picture, an image of the deep intimacy between Father and Son. It describes Jesus as being in the bosom of the Father, showing the love and the affection that exists between them. This idea of beloved not only shows the the love that the Father has toward the Son and the Son toward the Father, but it also exposes the wickedness of our sin. And you might say, well, how does that work? How do you get there? Well, you remember John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life, right? And then notice what He says right after that. For God did not send the Son into the world... To judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. God sent his one and only son, the beloved from eternity to come to us. The Father gave the most precious of all His gifts. He gave His beloved. He gave the one in whom His soul delighted. He he sent the light of the world. And what did the world do? What did the world do? 
They loved their sin more than the Savior, right? You know, this passage in John 3 isn't so much a, a, a declaration of God's love for humanity. It's a condemnation of humanity for rejecting the Son of God. That when the light came, men ran into the, the holes where the cockroaches go rather than to the light. And you know, if Jesus had come here in America in our day, or if he'd come to, to Africa or South America or Europe or Asia now or at any time in history, we would do the same exact thing. We would turn to the darkness rather than the light. When Jesus was hanging on the cross in Matthew 27, 42, do you remember what the people were saying to him, what was being hurled at him? They were saying this. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Do you see what they're doing there? They're taking those words that Jesus spoke. They're taking the words given in scripture of the the delight that the father takes in the son and that he is his beloved. And they're throwing him back in Jesus's face because they're saying, well, if God does love you, then why doesn't he save you now? Come down from the cross. Then we'll believe that you have this special relationship because you say you're the son of God. How evil is that? How wicked to take that intimate relationship that God the Father has with God the Son and throw it in His face and say, God doesn't love you, otherwise He'd save you. What a taunt. How wicked. And you know what? That same wickedness is in all of us. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us, all of us like sheep have what? gone astray each of us has turned to his own way we were out there in the crowd we were hanging on the cross next to him they were doing the same thing hurling the same insults we would have done it too all of us have sinned but you know what thankfully isaiah 53 Six doesn't stop there, right? It says, but the Lord has laid on him, the beloved, the Messiah, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even that guy next to Jesus taunting him. What happened in the midst of him hanging on the cross as well? God saved him. Even though he was taunting him just like the others. And that really matches that next description that we're given in Ephesians 1 and verse 7, that Jesus the Beloved is also Jesus the Redeemer. He is the one who's come to redeem. In verse 7 there, look again, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. You know, in those two verses, we have the words redemption. We have Christ's blood, forgiveness, sin, grace. All are significant words, right? All of those words tell us just how the Father was going to carry out His plan. We saw back in verse 3 that the Father has chosen us in Him. Well, how is God going to accomplish that? How is God going to bring those who are wicked rebels to be holy and blameless before Him? How is God going to take guilty sinners and make them adopted sons? How is His grace going to be poured out upon us? Well, they're answered in that very first phrase. In Him, we have redemption. Redemption. There's two words used for that in the New Testament. Uh, The first word for redemption is this idea of to purchase something, to acquire something by payment, uh, usually in the marketplace. The second word, the word that's used here, is a a word, lutrao, that has mainly the general idea of being delivered, being set free from captivity particularly and most often used usually in the form of a payment. It's a ransom to free someone out of the bondage of slavery. It was used often to describe someone being purchased out of the slave market. And in Rome, slavery was very common at that time. In fact, uh, some people estimate that there may have been more slaves in the city of Rome than there were free people. It was very common So people understood what it meant to be held captive, what it meant to be a slave, and that the only way out of that or the primary way out of that was to be purchased out of that. But you see, that slavery that Paul is talking about here, the need for redemption, tells us that we were held captive. We were held in chains, not not physical ones. 
There weren't physical walls around us. We weren't uh, uh, slaves in the physical sense, but spiritually we were, right? Romans 6.17 says that without the cross, we're slaves of sin. Ephesians 2.2 said we're dead in sin. Hebrews 2.14 and 15 describe us as slaves to Satan. Ephesians 2.2 says Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And though we may not have felt like slaves, we were. Some of you here who don't know the Lord may not feel like you're enslaved to anything. You may feel that, you know, I've not placed my faith in Christ, but, you know, I'm not such a bad person. I haven't been sucked into some terrible addiction. I, I don't treat other people badly. I generally obey the laws. I keep my nose clean. I'm not enslaved to anything. But you see, Satan would love to keep you there, blinded to the reality that you are in chains, that you are a sinner before a good and holy God, that you can't break free from that sin. You cannot deliver yourself from it. You can't stop pursuing those things. That sin is going to carry you to the very gates of eternal hell. Those chains can only be broken by redemption. They can only be broken by a ransom being paid. They can only be broken and set free by a purchase. In God's kindness, He sent Jesus to be that purchase, to be that redeemer, to be the one who would pay the ransom price, and it was costly. It was a costly payment. That was required. Only one price would free you. And that price is mentioned in Ephesians 1.7 in the very next line. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Through His blood. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed, same word, with perishable things like silver or gold, from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of an unblemished and spotless lamb, the blood of Christ. You see, the only acceptable ransom was a death, was the death of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting here, Paul didn't say that, though, directly. He didn't say that in him we have redemption through his death. He said through his blood. He referenced specifically the blood of Christ. Now, does that mean that Jesus simply had to bleed, that there was something magical or important in his blood, that we need to find that holy grail so we can, can, uh, can collect his blood? Again, so that it might have some mystical help in our lives? No, Jesus did indeed have to die. It says the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. But there's a specific reference to the blood because Paul is trying to draw us back to the picture of Old Testament sacrifice. Go back to Leviticus 1 for a minute. Leviticus 1. Leviticus is a book that describes the sacrificial system in much detail and the importance and and the reason behind those sacrifices. Leviticus 1, we see Moses articulating the words of God and giving detail and specific instruction regarding sacrifice. Read the first few verses. Leviticus 1.1 Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering for sin from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted and he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons. The priests shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. You see the picture here? What you would do at that time is you and maybe your family would come with you if you wanted to bring an offering for sin. Uh, you would come to the, to the tabernacle or later the temple after Solomon's time. And what you would do at the tabernacle, there were two courts. There was an outer court where everyone would hang out together. And then there's an inner court. And not everybody could go in there. Only the priest was allowed in there and the person bringing the sacrifice. So you would be coming along with your family or by yourself. And and as the head of the family, the head of the family would come to the gate and be entered in and he'd bring a sacrifice with him. This unblemished sacrifice, right? God wants the best. So the sacrifice would be brought in and, and the sacrificer, you would put your hands upon the head of that animal. And that was a picture, a symbol of of your sins being transferred to this innocent beast. And then what you would do is slit its throat. 
Now, I've, um, I've uh, been involved in raising cattle when I was growing up and seen many throats slit. And believe me, it is a bloody mess. But that's what they would do. They would slit its throat. The sacrifice at that point would have blood all over his hands. The, the priest would take that blood and sprinkle it on the altar and around the altar. And that blood was significant. Because God wanted us to see something in that picture. As you were standing there, as the blood was pouring out, getting all over your hands, and then you raised your hands to to God, asking for forgiveness, asking that your sins would be forgiven. God wanted you to see something. He wanted you to see sin is a bloody mess. Sin caused something. He wanted that graphic picture to be in their minds to realize this is how bad sin is. This innocent creature is being sacrificed because of you. Because of what you've done. Moses said in Leviticus 17, 11, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Atonement there is the idea of substitution. It is someone else in your place. In this case, something else. An animal in your place because of your sin. And Moses explained it as that the blood being poured out was to show you a picture. That was his life. That its life was required in exchange for yours. And that blood being shed had significance because, again, it did represent life. But see, there was a problem with this sacrificial system. You see, that wasn't permanent. God did indeed forgive the the sinner coming before him in genuine contrition, asking for forgiveness and confessing and offering a sacrifice of the animal, but it wasn't permanent. Hebrews 10.3 said, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, the only thing that would pay for a human's sin is the sacrifice of another spotless, sinless, innocent human. That's why Jesus had to come as a man. That's why we have the incarnation. A man had to die in place of another man. And that man had to be perfect. That's why Jesus had to come and live a perfect life without sin and then offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Only he could be that perfect substitute sufficient to pay for our sins. Hebrews 10.10 says this, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. But if you think about why sacrifice, why atonement? Right? It seems so primitive. Why all this blood stuff? It's so barbaric. Yes, it is barbaric because sin is barbaric. Any of us that would turn against the loving and holy God and, and spurn that love and spurn his goodness because we want to exalt ourselves and do what we want, that is barbaric. Terribly sinful to despise God's great glory so that I could do what I wanted and rebel against him. And that is worthy of eternal death. That is worthy of judgment. And that sin couldn't be wiped away just with merely a word. You know, God couldn't just say, you know what, just forget about it. We're cool. It's okay. Right? That wouldn't be just, would it? That wouldn't be right. To wink the eye at all the evil that's been committed in this world and just say, I'll forget about it. How many atrocities are happening today, right now? You don't have to go very far on a website to find the wickedness and iniquity and sin in this world. And we would just rather say, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. We wouldn't let a judge get away with that. Sin is terrible. Its impact on others is horrific. It is wicked and sin angers God and rightly so. It's against his character. It's an affront to his goodness and his holiness. It is the only the blood of Jesus Christ, only the blood of his son could settle that anger. There's a word uh, Ed used in the last service, propitiatory, propitiatory sacrifice. I can't even say it right. Propitiatory sacrifice, a propitiation. Romans three twenty four and 25 says, We were justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. That word propitiation means simply to appease. It means the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin by an offering. 
Because God hates sin. He hates it. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God, right? The anger, the fury of God is revealed against heaven, against all, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But you know what? Jesus' sacrifice satisfies that anger completely. Romans 3 said he's the propitiation. He's the satisfaction of that wrath. And if you've repented of your sin, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you have uh, begged God for forgiveness and, and, and trusted in the cross and the work of Jesus Christ to save you, then God is no longer angry at you or your sin. And He never will be. Know this, believer. Through the redemption paid for by Jesus' blood, Jesus has satisfied for eternity the wrath of God, the anger of God, against sin and he's never going to demand an eternal punishment from you he's never going to pour his wrath out upon you he's never going to scowl at you in anger and fury he did all that already he poured out all of his wrath upon jesus jesus is the full and complete satisfaction for sin silence come on amen he's the full satisfaction for what god and his anger requires Jesus has paid it, and God is not going to look at you with a scowl on his face. Ever. Yes, God does bring correction as a loving Father. Yes, there are times when our sin moves the Father to, to bring uh, discipline in our lives, but that's done to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's not, not done out of anger, He's not getting you back for sinning. God's desire is to treat you as a son and to lovingly bring you back. And sometimes he will use things that hurt to bring that correction. But it is done from the love of a father, not the harsh anger of a judge. I think as believers, we need to understand, we need to think about that, remind ourselves of that. We often come to him thinking that he's full of wrath against us. But Jesus has taken that wrath Jesus has paid for that sin. No more payment is required. And because of that, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, we've been forgiven of our trespasses or our sins. And forgiveness there simply means the release of a legal charge, of an obligation, of a punishment. It's a pardon. Jesus has pardoned our sins through his blood. And the debt owed by our sin wasn't just erased. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 and 14. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, God, God didn't just take that list of sins that, that you've committed and get a big eraser out and just erase them all and then hand the list back to you. If he did that, you know what? You could still look at that list and see the indentation of the pencil marks of your sin. God took that list, or in my case, it would be a set, a volume, several volumes, and he took those and he burned them. They're gone. They're eliminated. He canceled it out. He got rid of that certificate of debt against you. There's nothing in existence now that says you are a sinner. If you've turned to Christ, Christ took care of that. He nailed it on the cross, and it's like he had a big lighter up there and burned it up. It's gone. Nothing is against you. God will never come up to you in heaven and put his hand on your shoulder and say, by the way, you remember? Never. Never. It's canceled out. That certificate of debt against you. That is amazing. How can you sit there and not say anything? Come on. First service is all over, you guys. Seriously. It's gone. He canceled it out. No indentation marks. Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. It uh, was set up by the Lord every year where the high priest would make sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. And what he would do is take two goats and he'd bring two goats up to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle to present them before the Lord. And he would essentially choose by lot, you know, roll dice or pick some sticks to pick one of those goats and that goat would be the one sacrificed. He would slit its throat and sacrifice it on the altar. The other goat, the high priest would put his hands on the head of the goat as, a, again, a symbol of transferring the sins of, of Israel to that goat. And they would take that goat, go out into the wilderness, and set it free. And that was a picture. 
You had a picture first of the one goat taking atonement, substitution for your sins. The other goat, which had your sins upon it too, was out in the wilderness somewhere, gone. God wanted it to make clear to them, you know what? Your sins are erased. Who knows where that goat went? Psalm 103, 12 says this very well-known phrase, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed what? Our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The sea's pretty deep. Some places we've never, man has never even reached. Isaiah 44.22 says, I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And we know 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? God's forgiveness is thorough. It's complete. It's permanent. God will cast your sin into the sunset. He'll bury it in the deepest ocean. He'll hide it behind the thickest cloud. He will forgive it all. And He does so for this reason and this reason alone. Because of the atoning blood of Christ. Because that was poured out for you on the cross. You know, we sang several songs this morning that talked about His blood being shed for us. Don't let that phrase pass by without thinking what that means. The picture of His throat being slit, essentially, and blood pouring out because of our sin. That gross and and bloody scene. Because of what I've done. But that satisfied God's wrath against sin and the payment required for it. It is just amazing. It is amazing. Really think about this. You know, when I think of this passage, I think of Ephesians 1 7, this whole picture of redemption. You know, it brings to mind maybe like a, a garage sale you might see where, you know, I'm sure all of us have had one of those and you've dug around in the attic or somewhere and you found that old picture that grandma painted for you years ago, but she's gone now, so you can get rid of it. So you take it down and you want to sell it with all the rest of your stuff and you stick it on the table there with everything else. And, you know, time's going by and things are getting purchased, but that old picture stays there. Then getting toward the end of the day, everything's gone except that old painting. So as the owner gets ready to to take that thing and throw it away in the trash, because obviously it wasn't worth anything to anybody, a man shows up in the driveway, takes out his checkbook, writes the guy a check for $100 million. I want that picture. That's us. That's you and me. No one showed up for us, but Jesus did. Nobody came to our aid to free us from our bondage to sin and to Satan, except for Jesus. And He laid down an infinite price for us. The price was infinite, not because of the value in us, but because of His worth. But it was the asking price of sin. It was the only price God would accept. And that is why trying to earn our way to God's favor and think that good works that we can do. That is why that is so wicked. Because we're saying, yeah, that infinite blood of of Christ isn't enough. i got to do something. As if my deeds are anywhere near the blood shed for me by a perfect Savior. That's why Isaiah calls them filthy rags. Praise our Redeemer. We need to praise Him for paying such a price. But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only do we see that Jesus as the beloved son, as the the redeemer, but look at verses 9 and 10. It shows us there another uh, aspect, another description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. The end of verse 8 talks about uh, this little phrase in uh, wisdom and insight, uh, which is, I think, the second uh, aspect or second uh, product of his grace. The first being forgiveness, the second being wisdom and insight. And, And he says that, he gives that to us so that we might, as he's making known the mystery of his will, we might understand that. One of the main reasons that he's given us that intellectual and practical knowledge is so that we would understand what God has made known to believers, the mystery of his will. And then he explains it in verse 10. Verse 10 gives us what that mystery is. 
Mystery or mysterion is used 28 times in the New Testament, 21 of them by Paul, six of them in Ephesians alone. And its general meaning is this idea of something that was previously hidden or unknown, but has now been disclosed. Something that humans that we can't figure out, God has to reveal it to us. We'll talk more about it when we get to it in chapter 3. But what verse 9 is telling us here is that God has chosen to, he's peeling back the curtain if you will, so that we could see what what he is doing in history. What is this mystery of God's redemptive plan as he unfolds it through the, the course of time? Well, he's revealing to us what Christ is intending to do in creation. That mystery is explained, as I said, in verse 10. And I think it's really the pinnacle of the whole paragraph. I think the whole paragraph in talking about our salvation is, is moving us up the hill to reach this point in verse 10, where God's going back and he's saying, giving us the big picture of what he's doing and how that plan's going to be unfolded and how it's going to culminate and end in the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us that Christ is not only our redeemer, not only is he the beloved, but he's also the conqueror. He's the conqueror. Now, verse 10 is difficult to translate. In fact, how many of you reading it, in a, if you have the NAS or even the ESV, how many of you figured out what it was? It's kind of confusing, isn't it? At least I had trouble with it at first. Like, what, what is he doing here? Too many three-syllable-plus three words for me. The NIV, I think, gives the best rendering when it says, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Let me describe each of the key terms within the verse, and then we'll come back and put it together. Paul uses this word, uh, this idea of administration. That simply means the, uh, an arrangement, an order, a plan. It was used of managing a household. And it refers to either the plan itself or the carrying out of that plan. Fullness of times just gives the idea of a complete, a finished, of, of being filled up. Probably a good way to translate it would be when the right time has come and the planned upon time. Summing up is used to express the idea of of one who would sum up an argument or, or coming to the main point or this idea of gathering together. It, it's to bring all the parts into a coherent whole. It's a, it's a gathering together of everything into one place, essentially. It's connected grammatically to purpose in verse 9. So it's giving the idea of God, God's purpose to bring together. And the bring together is all things in heaven and upon earth. What do you think that means? All things in heaven and upon earth, right? Everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So everything he created is going to be brought together. And it's going to be brought together, he says, in Christ. Now, again, sometimes we may fly by that word in Christ, but I think he's intentionally drawing out Jesus' title here as Christ, anointed one, Messiah. Because he's drawing attention to the fact that, remember, it is the Messiah who's going to be the one to crush all of God's enemies, to be the coming eternal king the son of David. Verse 10 is essentially saying this, that God purposed in Christ to carry out or to put into effect at the right time on God's timetable to unite all things in creation in Christ. Creation is going to be restored to order because right now it's in great disorder, isn't it? Jesus Christ is going to bring that together, going to be restored to order in the Messiah and by the Messiah. You know, if you think about it, God intended for creation to be ruled by a man, right? You remember back in Genesis 1? God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then he said, let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, cattle of the earth. Then he says, God made man in his image. And then in verse 28, he says this, as God is addressing Adam and Eve, he said, God blessed them and said to them, remember what he said? Fruitful and multiply, have babies, fill the earth. And then he said this, and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every other living thing that moves. See, God wanted man to rule creation. David said in Psalm 6, you make man to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. But there's a problem, isn't there? What happened? Adam sinned, right? He submitted to a created being in the universe, to Satan, and sinned against God, rebelled against him. And as a result, creation was put under, the earth was put under the authority of the devil. Satan is now the God of this world in John 12. He's the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. He's the one who rules over the earth in 1 John 5, 19. 
That's why all creation groans and suffers. We're suffering and, and groaning under the curse of sin. Death reigns. Sickness and disease are widespread, right? Satan and his demons are, are roaming free, except for a few that were thrown in the abyss. It's another message. But, right, sin is rampant. Life is hopeless. Shakespeare's Macbeth said this upon being told the queen was dead. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then he is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I think he's making a play there on on the play itself. But he's talking about theater like life is an illusion. It's pointless. In the end, it really is without meaning. Sin has done that. Sin has accomplished that. It really has made life hopeless. But Shakespeare was wrong. History does have a purpose. God has a plan from before the beginning of time that he is not deviating from. In fact, right after Adam's sin in the garden, right? As God approached Adam and Eve and the serpent, you remember in Genesis 3.15 what he told the serpent, right? Your day's coming, dude. One day a man is going to crush your head. Right from the moment of the sin, God reveals a man is coming and he's going to make things right. 1 John 3.8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. God would still rule creation through a man, a second Adam. And that man, the Messiah, obviously, and of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the God the Son. And He's going to bring order to all this rebellion that's in His universe. He's going to sum up all things. He's going to gather all things together coherently so that there'll be one of two ways that creation is going to submit to God, either in judgment or in praise. Psalm 2 describes Jesus in this way. Actually, Jesus is speaking. The Messiah is speaking here in verse 7. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Listen, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Boy, this is not a picture of a domesticated Savior, is it? It's not a picture of a Savior who only exists to meet our every need and want and comfort. Yes, Jesus does comfort. Yes, He does help with needs. Yes, in in one hand is the healing balm of the great physician. But in the other hand is a sword. A sword of judgment. And He's going to use that sword one day. He is the great conqueror of all of God's enemies. He is the one who's going to bring back creation and bring back it bring it back to order. Go with me for a minute to 1 Corinthians 15. I referenced this passage last week. 1 Corinthians 15 is there we alluded to the fact that Jesus the Son would be in submission and subjection to the Father, but I want us to go back a few verses to verse 20 where we will see the context of that passage. Remember 1 Corinthians 15 is The text focusing on the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection. And the resurrection brings us to an important pinnacle in regards to who Jesus is and what he came to do. The resurrection was only the beginning. It put the stamp upon Jesus as the Messiah. And then Paul goes on to tell us, this is what this Messiah is going to do. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each one in his order, Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he established or he abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Rule, authority, and power typically refers to, to uh, demonic or angelic hosts. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted. 
who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. See a word there repeated a few times? Subjected, right? That takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. What did God intend from the very beginning? That creation would be subjected and ruled by man under God. We're coming full circle. The Messiah is going to accomplish that. He's going to bring, Jesus is going to bring all of creation under God's authority. Either again in judgment or in salvation. That will be brought together. This, this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 is really an expanded version of Ephesians 1.10. It's telling us Jesus is the conqueror. Sin will be dealt with in justice. Rebellion will be wiped out. God's enemies will be taken care of. And isn't that a good thing? I mean, think about all of the sin and iniquity taking place in this world. Satan and demons, murderers, evil dictators, rapists, pedophiles, unrepentant sinners who reject the offer of forgiveness and continue to spurn the name of Christ. Jesus is going to deal with that. One day, when the appointed time has come, God's amazing and long-lasting patience will run out. One day the conqueror is going to enter the scene and he's going to judge his enemies and save his friends. He's not going to show any mercy to their unrepentant. And I know, I know there are some here that are still in that camp. You have not submitted to Christ. You have not placed your trust in him. You've continued to live life your own way. And one day Jesus is going to address that issue. And you will either bow the knee to him in praise because you've asked for forgiveness, repented of your sin, or you will bow the knee in judgment and be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and his demons. This is true stuff. This is real. Jesus Christ is real. And he is the coming judge. He is the coming judge. One day... He will restore creation to order. But you know what? That coming judge, the same one that has the healing balm in one hand and the sword in the other, look up on his wrist and you'll find two nail marks. We'll all see that one day. We'll see that one day. And those marks remind us that this great conqueror is also our redeemer. There is still hope. There is still hope. And I would pray that God is working on your heart now if you don't know him to recognize that you still have hope. You can be freed from the sin that you're enslaved to. And for those of you that do know Him, we have hope too. We're not stuck here. We're going to be with Him one day. Through His grace and His mercy, Jesus came first to be our Redeemer so that we wouldn't have to suffer His judgment. Another result of His love is not only the fact that He has come as Redeemer, but also the fact that He is our Benefactor. We see that in verses 11 and 12. We're only going to look briefly at them because of time, but I've already made comment on several of the phrases there this week and last week. But there's one phrase I want to draw our attention to in particular. That's the first phrase given there in verse 11. It says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. <laughs> As if forgiveness wasn't enough. As if the fact that he's going to sovereignly and powerfully make all things right and bring all creation and submission to him wasn't enough. In him we also have an inheritance. Now some say this phrase should actually read, we were made an inheritance of God. They particularly draw a parallel to Deuteronomy 32 where God speaks of Israel as his inheritance, as his possession. But I think that, no, that is true. We are his possession, his inheritance. But I think uh, it's referring to the fact that God has made us to obtain an inheritance. So we're made heirs. Heirs, H-E-I-R-S, not errors. Heirs. The fact that in verse 14 we see uh, reference to inheritance there and it refers to believers. Also, the, the, that's more consistent, I think, with the theme of the paragraph here, which is God blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. I think the focus is on what God has done for us. And thirdly, the word inheritance there is more often used in the New Testament to refer to that received by the believer rather than referring to God's inheritance. So I would go with most of the English translations that are talking about we've been given or we have been made to obtain an inheritance from God 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting as you look at this paragraph, did you notice there's a progression in, in reference to time here? Back in verse 3, God chose us before the foundation of the world, talking about the past. In the present, Jesus has redeemed us. In him we have redemption, present tense. And now here in the future, that, that in Jesus we have an inheritance. But just what is that inheritance? What has Jesus, our loving benefactor, secured for us? Is it all in the future, or is some of that, do we experience it now? Is it just for, for the future or for today? Well, you have to wait till next time. We'll talk more about that, what that means. But brothers and sisters, I, I hope you can see, we've been given so much. <laughs> we've been given so much. And as we keep going through this passage and digging through each verse, it's amazing to me, utterly amazing what those spiritual blessings contain in having God himself and having redemption and being chosen and being adopted and being forgiven and having the blood of Christ being applied to me so that I no longer am under God's wrath and that I have an inheritance. It's amazing. We need to spend time pondering these things and not just let them stick here on Sunday morning. It's almost 12.15, now I can move on to the next thing. No, we need to think about and meditate on these things. These are what help and motivate us to do what's right. These are the things that, as Ed was talking about earlier in regards to purity, if you want a right foundation to have any hope of actually living with your wife or husband in an understanding way or, or loving others as you're supposed to, as you should, as God wants you to, You have to be thinking about what God has done in you in his salvation through Christ. That's why we talk about all these things. That's why we go through the passage and try to understand what these words mean. Because they have an impact on what you do. And that's the thrust of Ephesians. And we'll see that. As I better understand who I am in Jesus, I'm able to obey Jesus with joy. With joy. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, which again, I will say we have no clue what that really means. We're getting a glimpse. But all that has come about from the plan of the father by the power of the spirit through the work of the son. You know, God, the son is magnificent and we were we were all drowning in the river of iniquity. We were rushing rapidly toward the waterfall of hell. And it was only Jesus who dove in to rescue us. He waded through the water of the dead to yank you out. But that rescue did not come without cost. There was a charge. There was a price on our heads because of our sin. And it was a mighty price. It cost Jesus dearly. He gave up heaven for you. He left his father's side for you. For a time on the cross, he endured endured. Broken fellowship with the Father, something that had never happened. He suffered shame and indignity. He gave up his prerogatives as God for a time. He gave up his own life. No, this rescue cost Jesus dearly. And before we leave this morning, I want you to take a moment and meditate on him. I want you to meditate and think about, remind yourself, look at your notes. Meditate upon Jesus as the beloved son, Jesus as your redeemer, as your conqueror as the conqueror and as your benefactor. So I want to give you a moment in silence just to to do that. And if you are one of those who have not placed your trust in Christ, now's the time. Now's the time to bend the knee to Jesus and say, please forgive me. I want to turn from my sin and follow you. I want to know you, but only Jesus can do that. Take this moment now while you have a chance to do that. So I'll give you a moment of silence and prayer to Christ. Oh, Father, you have indeed blessed us beyond with every spiritual blessing. It's an unfathomable gift, an unfathomable kindness. Your mercy is infinite. You have, Lord, planned redemption from the beginning of time, sent your son, your beloved son, the one in whom you were well pleased and delighted in so that he would suffer the shame and the dignity and insults and endure the wickedness of sinful man so that he might shed his blood He might make payment for our sins and live for, Lord, in submission to you, out of love for you and out of love for us. We thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. I just pray, Father, that you would help us to reflect on these truths, to meditate on them, to think of them throughout the week, that we might 
not only rightly honor and praise you, but live for you so that we could have the strength and hope and understanding to to walk out of here and and deal with the sin in our own life and and deal with the temptations thrown at us and the trials and the struggles. You've given us every spiritual blessing. We look forward to our inheritance in Christ fully, of which now the Holy Spirit is, is a taste of that, a down payment. May you be pleased with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.